0: Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theatres everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our
1: time. I
0: stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theatres Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
2: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a simple truth. Elections have consequences. The U.S. House of Representatives is now just one vote away from sending real, tangible economic relief to millions of Americans and making good on one of President Biden's top campaign priorities. The House will vote this week to send a version of the nearly $2 trillion COVID relief package to the president's desk to be signed into law. And the just plain facts are that if Democrats hadn't won those two Senate seats in Georgia in January, this might not be happening at all. After a lot of Democratic internal wrangling, the bill passed the Democratic-controlled Senate over the weekend with absolutely zero report from Republicans, not a single vote. It now heads back to the House for that final vote. And if they pass it as is, that's it. The bill heads, heads to President Biden's desk. Done deal. President Biden said today that he'd sign it as soon as he gets it, and the legislation could not be more urgently needed as he indicated over the weekend.
3: When We took office 45 days ago. I promised the American people that help was on the way. Today, I can say we've taken one more giant step forward in delivering on that promise that help was on the way.
2: Today, the White House said the $1,400 checks included in the plan could start going out by the end of the month. Now, make no mistake, this bill is massive. It stands to help millions and millions of Americans who've been economically crippled by a now year-long pandemic. The Washington Post notes that the bill spends most of the money on the American people, describing it as one of the most generous expansions of aid to the poor in recent history. And the New York Times points out that the child tax credit in the bill is a policy revolution in the making. More than 93% of children, 69 million, would receive benefits under the plan. The version of the bill approved by the Senate isn't perfect. It passed with changes to the income threshold for those $1,400 direct payments, and it caps federal jobless benefits at $300 per week instead of the $400 Biden wanted. Those changes were pushed in part by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and that could make it a tough pill to swallow for progressives in the House. But even with those changes, Vermont's independent progressive Senator Bernie Sanders called it the most significant piece of legislation to benefit working families in the modern history of this country. Meanwhile, Republican senators of the party that claims that it's a party of the working people, but who did nothing to support the bill or really their own constituents, since they can't really address the fact that they didn't support it, are now just lying about the bill.
4: This was a liberal wish list of liberal spending, just basically filled with pork. Look how crazy some of the Democratic ideas are. I mean, they had a chance on Saturday morning to stop
5: checks from going to prisoners. And on that vote, they declined. it. There's reparations for minority farmers that don't have to demonstrate any financial stress or any adverse effect from COVID, but they'll get 120% of whatever indebtedness they have just paid for by the taxpayer, but not if you're a white farmer.
2: Egads, reparations. Oh. Butch your pearls. So these senators are doing this like cut rate version of the act that works so well for their still boss, who's now just a Florida retiree, bullying them with weirdly presidential seal looking statements. But here's the thing. They're not Donald Trump. So the discount Donalds in the insurrection caucus are really easy to smack down. Here's majority whip Dick Durbin, not usually a fighting guy, giving old Ted Cancun Cruz the business.
6: The question for the American people to answer is, should your money, should taxpayer money be sent $1,400 to every illegal alien in America? This amendment provides that it should not.
1: The statement of the senator from Texas is just plain false. False. Let me be clear. Undocumented immigrants do not have social security numbers, and they do not qualify for stimulus relief checks, period.
2: Oops. For more, I'm joined by Angela Rye, former executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus and Charlie Sykes, editor at large for The Bulwark. And, you know, Angie, the, the thing that's so funny about it is that these guys are throwing out statements that you can like fact check on Twitter. I mean, Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz both voted for the previous version, the CARES Act, which also allowed people who are in prison to get checks, which, which allowed many, these things are just extensions of the same stuff. They're just adding more money. I I wonder if if the sort of benefit they get by saying those words and then having that repeated on social media on and on conservative media, is that enough to justify being able to be so easily fact checked, including maybe in ads?
6: You know, Joy, I would love to understand what makes these people Get on the Senate floor, or for some of the House members to go to the House floor after taking an oath and just blatantly lying to the American people for you know a few pats on the back by randoms who don't have any allegiance to facts whatsoever. I think what's so interesting is in Ted Cruz's remarks, he of course talks about undocumented folks getting um, stimulus checks, but he act he must not know the process and perhaps. Joy, it goes back to the very idea of Cancun. Um, You know, he's so out of touch that he doesn't realize you actually have to have a social security number to get a stimulus check. Like, let's just start there. And I think to your point, it could be easily fact checked on Twitter. But most importantly, what I would love to see is someone with a moral fiber, some type of conscience representing the American people and not bogus claims for the right.
2: Yeah. And, you know, Charlie, the thing about it is they're also not going to get a pat on the back from the man they wanted from the walls. The, the person they want to cuddle them that's in Florida is not going to cuddle them because he doesn't care about the Republican Party. And the people in the party who you think would want to stand and fight for it are like, I'd rather quit. I'd rather get out of the Senate and retire than stay and try to fight for the integrity of my party. The party's being left for the Ted Cruz's and the Tom Cotton's. Look at these five who are leaving. Toomey's like, I'm done. I, I I did my club for growth thing. I got my Senate money. I got my tax cut. I'm rich. Got my tax cut. I'm out. Richard Burr, I'm out. Rob Portman, Richard Shelby, Roy Blunt. Like these are like the old school Republicans. They're not fighting for the integrity of the party. They're just like, let the Trumpies have it. So is that what's going to happen? Are we just going to basically have John Birch Society 2.0? Well,
7: um, you're going to get a more Trumpy United States Senate uh, if the Democrats don't pick up those seats. Uh, yeah, because what you're seeing is that that the, the old school senators, you know, came there to legislate, to debate, to legislate, to compromise. And what you're seeing now is basically the Senate is uh, dominated, the Senate Republicans are dominated by the people who want the soundbite. You know, why why does Ted Cruz say the things that he says? Because he knows that that's going to be played on Fox News. That is the that's the meme. That is the narrative that's going to play in conservative media. And the fact check won't ever really catch up with the fact, you know, that that he's, you know, waving that bloody shirt. And it is sort of, you know, Trump 2.0. You know, you have a one point nine trillion dollar piece of legislation and they're focusing on the bogus claim that illegal aliens will get it. Look, I, I, I think that one of the big questions is how is this going to be different from 2009? Um, Republicans just think that by voting no, that they're going to be able to you know, run against this big spending package and have big wins in the in the midterm election. I think the big difference is, number one, Joe Biden knows he's got to sell it. He's got to be out there aggressively explaining what's in the package. And number two, unlike, say, Obamacare, the benefits are going to be showing up in people's bank accounts within the next few weeks. They're not going to have to wait until after the election to see what's in this bill. So I think that this is a very different political situation. And yet the Ted Cruz's of the world keep pretending it's 2009 all over again.
2: Well, you know, and Angela, if you, you know, people like Masha Gessen have been talking about the fact that, you know, the Republican Party is devolving into this sort of you know, kind of crypto fascist entity that basically is just like everything the, you know, the ruling party is doing is bad, 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 bad. We're just going to run against it. And it doesn't matter even if we agree with the underlying stuff. And the idea is to just degrade people's trust in government at all and their faith in government at all. And I wonder for the Democrats. If they're looking at a midterm where Republicans are just going to be screaming about undocumented people and trying to do the brown scare and the black scare again, Mm -hmm. that criminals are getting. And you know what they mean when they say criminals, right, that they're going to do the racism. They're going to they're just going to pretend the bill doesn't exist as the check in your hand. I wonder if you feel like Democrats are ready for that, because not even all the Democrats could agree on 15 dollars. They couldn't even get their own people to pass probably the most powerful Redu- thing that would reduce poverty, which would be $15. They couldn't even get that to happen. So I wonder if you sense that the Democrats are ready for what they're about to face. You know, Joy,
6: is such a profound point, And we, you know, talk about this often, um, both privately and publicly about the idea of a big tent and what it means, the types of compromises that you have to reach. There are some things That should just be based on a moral compass. And you would think, right, that Republicans would be um, in lockstep with trying to really provide the American people relief. But as you just said, you know, when we started the show, you have Pat Toomey on. You listed him as a Republican who's ready to retire. But this is somebody who just was talking about black farmers receiving reparations as if he's never heard of the Pickford settlement, right? There are all these things that make sense to ensure that people are finally made whole and who cares if it's as a result of a pandemic or if it's as a result of another black man or woman being killed by the police or if it's because economically people are suffering we just need to do the right thing to the point if democrats the democrats can't find the courage and if republicans can't find the courage to reach across the aisle and do the right thing because people are suffering. I think it's more than a bipartisanship that is in harm's way. It is literally the very livelihood of so many Americans that don't care who was the reason that got things across the finish line. But I will tell you, Thank God for a Raphael Warnock and for a John Ossoff, who knew that this uh, particular measure around black farmers needed to go Cory Booker. Because when uh, Joe yep. Manchin is in the way of another Joe, a Joe Biden, at least those two are there. Thank God for special elections.
2: Oh, amen. I mean, you know, it's the funny thing about it, though, is, Charlie, I don't think that these Republicans think they understand Trump the way they think they do, right? I mean, Lindsey Graham was on Axios being like, Trump's got some bad points, but he's going to grow the party. Did they, I don't know if they understand that the way that Donald Trump pulled that off, A, because he was famous, so he got away with a lot of stuff, but B, he was the checks guy. He wasn't the, tell me how I can justify sending you checks guy. He sent farmers checks sight unseen. You a farmer? You want some money? Here's some money. Vote for me. You want some money in the stimulus? Take all the money. He understood that checks are good politics, but Donald Trump wasn't about fiscal responsibility. He was like, spend all the money, send it to all the airlines, send it to the people who have um, cruise ships, but send everybody money and that to buy their votes. So I don't understand even what they they don't, they think they're doing Trumpism, but they're not.
7: No, they don't quite, they don't quite get that. Remember when uh, Donald Trump was trying to push for those, the $2,000 check right before the election and uh, didn't get anywhere with all of that. Um, I always think it's interesting. That if you if you got a Republican in the room, say, OK, um, you keep talking about socialism, define socialism. And when Donald Trump was sending out all those checks to the farmers, does that qualify as socialism? I would like a definition. But by you, you mentioned that interview with Lindsey Graham where he's talking about the magic of Donald Trump. And he says he's a combination of Jesse Helms, Ronald Reagan, and P. T. Barnum, which was a weird thing to say, because Jesse Helms, of course, is a pro-segregationist, uh, uh, you know, uh, senator who had actually filibustered the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. P. T. Barnum was known as the Prince of Humbug, and then, of course, there's Ronald Reagan, and it's like, what, what? What concoction are you thinking of of there that you're comparing Donald Trump to one of the most notorious bigots in American politics, um, a circus ringleader and then Ronald Reagan? And yet somehow. what Lindsey Graham thinks there's some magic in all of that. No, I don't think that he quite gets it.
2: Or he does get it. And he was being accurate.
7: Well, okay. maybe he was. I was actually surprised he He didn't throw in George Wallace at a a, a certain point. Um, He probably at the last second said, let
2: me leave off Wallace. Let me leave off Wallace so that I'm so that Donald Trump doesn't figure out what I'm saying, because he's blinking through the TV. He knows exactly what he's saying. He's a southern senator.
7: but why does he
2: think it's Matt?
5: Because it's Matt. And, and
2: because it, it is for a certain part of his base. We, uh, we could go on like this for Africa. I'm telling you, I think he knew exactly what he's saying. I think Angela agrees with me. Angela Rye, Charlie Sykes, thank y'all both very much. Up next on The Readout, the Derek Chauvin murder trial. George Floyd's brother, Phil Anise, joins me on the family's quest for justice. Plus, Ted Cancun Cruz is now an outcast at his own alma mater. Princeton University's Debate Society, the oldest in America, has voted to strip... Cancun Cruz of a prestigious public service award because of his efforts to overturn the election. Cruz was a prime candidate, as he always is for tonight's absolute worst, for his xenophobic lies about undocumented immigrants getting COVID relief checks. But believe it or not, we found someone even worse. Seriously, we really did. The big reveal is coming up, and I have a lot to say about Oprah's blockbuster interview with Meghan and Harry. The readout continues after this. The trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer accused of killing George Floyd, started in Minneapolis today. Chauvin, who infamously was recorded kneeling on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, is charged with second degree murder and manslaughter. Jury selection was supposed to begin today, but got pushed back. While an appeal proceeds over whether or not prosecutors are also able to charge him with third degree murder. George Floyd's death sparked protests across the country and a nationwide reckoning with America's history of racism and police brutality. Those protests continue today in downtown Minneapolis, where the high profile nature of the case could make it difficult to find an impartial jury. The questionnaire given to possible jurors includes questions on whether they've ever watched or discussed George Floyd's death, or if they participated in any marches against police brutality. It goes as far as to ask Did you carry a sign? What did it say? Joining so me mean now is Philanise Floyd, George Floyd's brother, and Ben Crump, attorney for the Floyd family. Thank you both for being here. And uh, Mr. Floyd, I want to first ask you about that—the way that this jury selection is going to proceed. What do you make of the fact that they seem to be at least trying to identify, if not maybe weed out, people who protested the death of your brother?
5: Uh,
4: me, basically, I, I really just think uh, I think it's ridiculous because I think that everybody should have the opportunity. To speak up on what they believe in, but I I understand the process of elimination. So uh, it's their job to do what they need to do. And it's my job to do what I have to do. And also my team.
2: Indeed. You know, and Ben, you know, we've been we've been through this. I don't even want to count them at this point. We've been doing this since 2006 when I first met you um, on these kinds of cases. And, and you know, I, I am very cynical at this point as to whether the criminal justice system is even prepared to deal with these kind of situations. But I want to get your take. You now have this third degree murder charge taken off because generally third degree murder has been about, you know, you spray bullets everywhere in the crowd and somebody gets hurt or you do something, you know, that basically could result in death, but endangers lots of people and then one person dies. So that was taken off. Do you think that that's a good thing or do you think that taking any charges off the table makes it such a narrow lane to go down for conviction that it makes conviction less likely?
1: You know, Joe, I am of the opinion like you. It is very difficult to have a police convicted for killing an unarmed black person in America. We've saw any number of cases where they did not hold them accountable. That's why I agree with uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison, the first African-American attorney general of the state of Minnesota. No, we want to make sure we have every charge possible presented to the jury to make sure that Derek Chauvin is held criminally liable for killing George Floyd. Just like they do in our community, George. You know, they throw the whole book at us. They have every lesson included there. So if the jury don't think it was this year, we're going to convict on that. And that's what we got to do. We don't want anything different than if the roles would have been reversed and George Floyd would have did this to Derek Chauvin. How many charges do you think they would have had on George?
2: Yeah. I mean, having been on, been on a grand jury, it's like they charge like 10 things to make sure you can pick one of them. You're going to get them from something. You know, uh, Mr. Floyd, how is the family prepared for an outcome like the ones we've seen in previous cases? Not just the police, but even people who are acting like police who killed a, a black man or child. Um, and and just walked away. You know, you think of the Tamir Rice case where you see the video of this officer just drive up and shoot this this child, this, this little boy who's playing with a toy gun like any little boy would. And that couldn't result in, in, in conviction when 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 it's when the odds are so the odds are so low that he will be convicted. Is the family emotionally prepared for that outcome or are you, or do you believe that a conviction is possible?
4: I believe that a conviction is possible. Um, we want justice, just like everybody else who was marching out in the streets, because just look at the video. If you look at the video, you can see that was wrong. It was a modern day lynching in broad daylight. He had his knee on my brother's neck for eight minutes and four to six seconds. Nobody tried to render aid. An EMT worker tried and they just like pushed him back like no. And it was he. He. It's like he intended to do that. And my brother laid there with his face down in a prone position, blood dripping out of his nose, and he was steady saying that he couldn't breathe. And the officer, he didn't care. Nobody cared. It was a tragedy that we shouldn't have had, and that's the reason that this is a global movement and people are marching all around the world because we don't want this to happen anymore. We're tired of seeing the same thing
2: hmm. I want I want to ask you both, because there isn't there's a there's a law that's named after your brother, Mr. Floyd. Um, it's called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Only one uh, Republican voted for it in the House by mistake and then took it back and said, oops, I accidentally pushed yes when I meant no. So no Republicans support it. So it's got a tough road to go in the Senate. Do you support it? Because there are there is another version of this bill that would cut police funding, way down, if not totally. But this bill does ban the chokehold. It overhauls, uh, qualified immunity and it does some other things that I'm that I, the fan that you've expressed. I've seen interviews where you've expressed support for, do you support the bill as it is the George Floyd act?
1: Yes.
4: I support the George Floyd act. Uh, it, it, it's, it's something that we needed in this nation. Uh, it's been a civil rights movement all the way back. You can start in 1950s and 1960s. You've seen people marching with Dr. King. Everybody was trying to prevent what happened to my brother because Dr. King said it a long time ago. He had a dream that all men and women, boys and girls, could join hands together around this world. When well, my brother was cute it started happening. You see people walking in the streets, holding hands, no matter what race, Caucasian, African American, Chinese, Asian, everybody was out during the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. And people were risking their life out for what was right. And that touched me. And the protesters that did that, hey, they ought to be having their faces on Mount Rushmore and things like that because they did what they had to do. They got out And they participate in something that we should have been doing a long time ago. Changing. It's time for change. And that time is now.
2: Indeed, I don't think anybody can argue with that. And, you know, then um, there's it's already starting. The thing that, again, we've seen this act before um, the reports they're putting out that they're well, there were drugs found in the car um, trying to sort of bring up other reasons, other sort of excuses for what happened to George Floyd and what looks like an attempt to attack his character. What can be done about that? Is that something that can be kept out of this trial?
1: Unfortunately, Joy, they are going to be given some latitude to talk about anything that may have contributed to the death of George Floyd. But we have to remember two things, Joy. George Floyd was walking, talking, breathing just fine until Derek Chauvin put his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I learned in law school that literally, if you got the facts on your side, you argue the facts. When you don't have the facts on your side, you attack the character of your opponent in hopes that it would be a distraction to keep people not focused on the facts. Where we... Are focused on that video, and that video tell us everything we need to get a conviction and hold these officers liable, and try to change this uh, excessive use of force on black people. I mean, over and over again, Joy Reid, we've done it since you know, Mike, uh, two thousand six, Martin Lee Anderson. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, on and on and on. Tamir Rice. Michael Brown. I mean, how many?
2: Yeah, it's it's it it is a question that has no answer, um, my friend. Um, and there'll be video in the courtroom for everyone's going to be able to see it. And if they do try to attack George Floyd's character, they're going to have to do it on camera. We're all going to be able to see it. Uh, and perhaps there'll be some accountability politically if they if uh, prosecutors try that. Philanis Floyd, again, always condolences to you and thank you so much always for sharing some time with us. Bankrupt, my friend. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. And still ahead, a new report on cheers, a new report on security features during the Capitol failures during the Capitol insurrection calls for more police, more fencing and better integrated intelligence. Will addressing these concerns keep members of Congress safe? We'll be right back. A new nonpartisan report finds that the U.S. Capitol is still vulnerable to the kind of deadly violence we saw on January 6th. Lawmakers were briefed today on the alarming findings of a six-week review led by retired Army Lieutenant General Russell Honore. As a no-nonsense commander, Honore is best known for coordinating the military's relief effort in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and was widely acclaimed for succeeding where FEMA had failed. Now his review has found that U.S. Capitol Police were understaffed, insufficiently equipped, and inadequately trained to secure the Capitol. Furthermore, they are not postured to track, assess, plan against, or respond to the threats Congress now faces, including emerging domestic threats. Among other things, the task force recommends a quick reaction force to respond to crises, a streamlined decision-making process to avoid delay, increased staffing and intelligence, authority to calm the National Guard, and mobile fencing and mounted police units. Of course, as NBC News reports, enacting the recommendations, would mean boosting the Capitol Police budget, which is an already sizable four hundred and sixty million dollars a year. I'm joined now by Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. Congressman Crow, thanks so much for being here. Let's start on the money. I think for a lot of people, they look at that four hundred and thirty, four hundred and sixty million dollar existing budget for the Capitol Police and wonder why should they get more money if they did such a poor job of responding the first time around? What do you what do you say to that?
5: Hi, Joy. Thanks for having me on tonight. Well, the the money is coupled with recommendations, recommendations, changes in training, changes in an operational chain of command, intelligence gathering. It's not just the money; it's what's behind the money. Now, you know that dollar amount was actually a range of different options. They presented to us a range of different options. Uh, clearly, we were not ready to respond to a January 6th style attack, and there are many, many different deficiencies that were identified by uh, the task force. So, I actually feel better coming out of that briefing than I felt going into it because they did look at the strategic level issues and deficiencies. They looked at the tactical level uh, deficiencies uh, and uh, improvements that need to be made. Now the question is, are we going to make them? Are we going to actually act upon those recommendations and do what's necessary to secure the capital in our democracy?
2: Well, I mean, to do that, you're going to need Republicans. Uh, theoretically, you should want them to sign on to it because they were also attacked. They weren't running toward the attackers. They were running away from them with y'all. Uh, but what do you make of these attacks on, on, on General Honoré? Now, when I heard that there was there was going to be this sort of commission, I thought, who would you want? You'd want General Honoré. He's a no-nonsense guy. You yourself are a former Army Ranger. I think you're 82nd, Air- 82nd Airborne. You know what generals sound like, right? They're not like dainty in the way they talk. And you know, they've tried to go after him for having criticized Josh Hawley. We'll put this tweet up um, that he had put up saying basically this little piece of blank with his Yale law degree should be run out of D.C. and disbarred ASAP. But what he was talking about was Lawrence Tribe, the professor had tweeted, uh, a, sent out a tweet calling for Hawley to be expelled because Josh Hawley supported the insurrection. He gave the fist up to the insurrectionists. He voted to overturn the election. He actually was on the wrong side. And so Russell Honore wasn't just attacking him politically. He was attacking him because of that. And yet House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy went after him yesterday, saying General Honore's notorious partisan bias calls into question the rationality of appointing him to lead this review and raise the unacceptable possibility the Speaker desired a certain result, turning the Capitol to a fortress. What do you make of those criticisms? Do you think they are? Um, do you think they're? Do you think, Do you think those criticisms are just, you know, the, an attempt to evade the fact that the Capitol needs more security?
5: Well, Kevin McCarthy is trying to undermine the legitimacy of the entire review process. He actually doesn't want to even acknowledge that January 6 occurred. He's uh, trying to move on. He's trying to move past it. He's okay. trying to you know, sweep it under the rug. Uh, so he doesn't want anything to, to be brought out about this and any changes because obviously the changes would, would mean that something really terrible happened because it did. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm not going to accept the recommendations by General Honore or any other general just because they're a general. I'm a former Army Ranger. I served three combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I have a thing or two to say about mismanagement of wars, uh, problems with uh, uh, the way that uh, certain uh, missions have been led. Uh, You know, I uh, hold generals accountable all the time as a member of the Armed Services Committee. So being a general doesn't mean you're right. Uh, But being right means that you're right. So this report actually had the elements that I was looking for. Uh, I looked at things in detail. There's actually a much more detailed classified report that's many times this length that I'm going to be looking at this week. Uh, but I think we're on the right track. And the bottom line is, uh, you know, nobody wants a January 6th style attack or any attack to happen again. And to prevent that from happening again, changes have to be made.
2: And do you worry at all that, you know, this sounds like a further militarization of the process of this particular police department that answers only to, to Congress? And generally, the militarization of police has been bad. It's been bad for peace protesters. It's been bad for Black Lives Matter. It's been bad for non-white protesters. It's generally been used against people on the side of asking for more rights and more uh, protection of their rights. Not really for this was the first time we saw the far right. Um, sort of even disgust when it comes to trying to protect against their their ability to gather. Um, Do you worry that if the Capitol Police get more power and more militaristic style power, that ultimately when the other side is in charge, it'll be used against people who just want peace or who want police not to be killing people?
5: Well, I'm somebody that has been very sensitive to militarization of police. I've been vocal about that. I've pushed back on it. I've helped support an amendments to the DOD budget that have prevented that from happening to local law enforcements around the uh, the country. But, you know, if this is done right, it actually means less militarization. It actually means less power, and it means that we're not uh, doing things on an ad hoc situation by situation basis. It means we have very clear rules of engagement. We have a very clear and accountable command structure. There are rules and guidelines that govern that. And there are actually things that are put into place, barriers, uh, you know, electronic fences, uh, sensors, closed circuit cameras, automatic locks that actually prevent force from being used, that prevent these things from happening in the first instance. So if it's done right, it actually means you're safer You're less militarized and we prevent force from ever being used.
2: Congressman Jason Crow from my former neck of the woods out in Colorado. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time, sir. Appreciate you. Thanks, Joy. And, And cheers. And still ahead, my thoughts on Oprah's bombshell interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Ah, yes. But first, it's time. Yes. For tonight's absolute worst. You are not going to want to miss it. Stay with us. Well, the light at the end of the proverbial pandemic tunnel just got a little bit brighter with the CDC administering five point three million vaccines over the weekend, meaning there are now at least 60 million people who have received one or both doses of a vaccine in the United States. Now, of course, none of this means we are out of the pandemic. The U.S. is now facing a fourth surge as variants spread. And the anti-mask movement has something to do with that. Here are protesters. Enjoying a charming little mask-burning event in Boise, Idaho, a state, mind you, that doesn't even have a mask mandate, and where alleged grown-up adults encourage children to burn brand-new, unused PPE. Adorable. It's a movement emboldened by the Republican elected officials responding to private corporate interests, yet in doing so, they are putting small businesses solely in charge of their own safety. Texas and Mississippi governors, who are both vaccinated by the way, lifted their mask mandates, but neither state is giving vaccine priority to those in the restaurant, retail or grocery sectors, which brings us to the issue of workers who are the targets for physical and verbal attacks, along with potential infection, as they ask and plead for people to just abide by their company mask policies.
3: And I can show you the cable cover and everything. It's a hoax. I
2: don't have to wear a mask. I'm not going
3: to wear a mask. This is America, and I you don't do have to do what you say. Excuse
2: me. You're Trump 2020. Count your days. Count your days. Bully. What? This is giving you the right to be a bully? Because you're brainwashed? I am a scientist! There is no corona! Don't make me wear your mask! Are you crazy? Are you trying to kill me? Hashtag she's she's not a scientist. Anti-masking while racist is also in full swing. When a Mexican restaurant in Houston announced it would continue to require masks, people sent them hateful messages threatening to report staffers to immigration and customs enforcement.
0: Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere.
2: along with laws against jaywalking and smoking in planes and driving while drunk. But you throw in wear a mask into the mix and suddenly it's about personal freedom. Well, personal freedom for who? Are these same protesters blazing fires in front of state capitals for women and their right to choose? Does the rallying cry of I can't breathe with a mask hanging under your chin have the same impact when it's a rallying cry against chokeholds like the one that killed George Floyd? I think we know the answer to that. They don't believe in personal freedom for anyone except them. And they will fight for that right, even if it kills you. And one you're in, we know all too well that it could absolutely kill you. And that's why anti-mask bullies are the absolute worst. More readout after the break. Today, people in the United Kingdom finally got to see what all of America is talking about. Oprah Winfrey's just blockbuster interview with Meghan and Harry. The British subjects of Queen Elizabeth got to hear the Duke and Duchess of Sussex detail their nearly four-year struggle with exclusion, racism, and the royal family's rigidity.
1: In
0: those months when I was pregnant, all around this same time, so we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born.
5: What?
2: Megan shared with us that there was a conversation with you about Archie's skin tone. Mm -hmm. What was that conversation?
3: That conversation (laughs) I'm never going to share. Um, But at the time, at the time it was awkward. I was a bit shocked. Um, Can you you tell us what the question was? No, I'm not comfortable with sharing that.
2: It was a deeply personal and shocking interview that, though frankly, not at all surprising to people of color who watched it. And it's triggered a massive royal scandal not seen since the mid-90s with Harry's mother, Princess Diana.
3: What I was seeing was history repeating itself, but more perhaps or definitely far more dangerous because then you add race in. And you add social media in, and when I'm talking about history opinion itself, I'm talking about my my mother.
2: And right on cue, the UK's trashiest tabloids—the very same ones who've been torturing Meghan Markle since the wedding—promptly went to work, savaging the couple, trying to undermine their claims and presenting the Queen as the real victim in all of this. And for more, I'm joined by Lola Adesoye, social and political commentator, and Martin Lewis, political commentator and humorist. Thank you both for being here. And Lola, you know, as I watched that interview, as shocking as it was, again, I was not surprised by the racism that Megan has received because she's been... Attacked and attacked and attacked in the tabloids, and every black woman knows what it's like to be thrown down as the angry woman, as the bully. It's always that the other princess, you know um, uh, William's wife is is the poor victim of this vicious black woman who's bullying her and hurting her. It was easy to see how this was coming, and you can see where they were coming from. I was not surprised by it, um, it it's It's sort of sad to see that, you know, Diana's youngest, who clearly took on so much of his mother's ethos in terms of his openness on, on issues of race, even just dating someone like her. Obviously, he was open already. And then he just really realized and got a whole lesson in racism from dating her. Um, but, but I wonder what you, you make of the fact that it really took them to leave the country, to get physically away from not even just Britain, but from the Commonwealth. They had to leave everything. And then set themselves up in, a, in, in the United States in order to be even speak that truth. And then when the truth came out, it was literally what every black woman feels like they would face in that situation.
8: Yeah, I mean, I knew that Megan was going to be a modernizing force. But as we know, change is sometimes welcomed in the beginning, but not welcomed when it actually starts to create change. Right. And so Megan's presence as a woman of color in a royal family, let's let's really think about this. The very idea of having a monarchy in the way that the UK monarchy is formed is on an outdated model. It's on the model that there are people who are basically superior by virtue of their birth, by virtue of their blood, by virtue of their lineage. It's the epitome of privilege. It's the epitome of the status quo. And this is a family that's been in existence for literally hundreds of years. So are they going to want to change their ways just because one person has come in and you know shown a new face? So she was a new face, um, you know, interesting for a while until that started cre- to create ripples within the family. And yes, she is a black woman and not just a token black woman, a woman with a voice. And so, yes, yeah, ha- they had to move away. Even the idea of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is a bunch of countries which were subjects, colonial subjects of the, of, of the UK, of England. I mean, by itself, that tells you a lot. There's no way that this could have... I anticipated that they would have ended up moving. There's no way this kind of change could have happened within the royal family without there being something dramatic and explosive that happened afterwards.
2: Well, right. And Martin, you know, I mean, you think about the fact right? it's a commonwealth. I mean, but first of all, if you want to talk about lineage, Queen Charlotte is in their lineage. And there, there, there are all the stories about how she was painted and whether or not the fact that she also um, was of a mixed race with black heritage, whether that was sort of tried to be subordinated right in their history. But there's also the German side. I mean, these people's name ain't Windsor. They made it Windsor so that they could de-Germanize themselves and separate themselves from all the other Germanic um, royal families, including in Russia where the people took out the royal family, took out the czar, which was King George's like first cousin, like twinly first cousin. So they have all of these sort of anxieties that you can see at the surface of this story and that Harry kind of alluded to. But speak specifically to the ones that Lola talked about. The fact that the (laughs) colonial, that they are this sort of colonial empire that took over all of these black and brown countries and subordinated them. And first you have Diana, who then bonds with those people. They hate her. And then you have Megan, who even more can, in some ways, bond with those people. And she has the same magic with those people, and they hate her.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, the thing is, one likes to think of merry old England, of sweet people, and you think of the lovely philosophy of the Beatles, all you need is love, but you scratch the surface in Britain and you find something quite ugly. You know, in June 2016, that's the month that Harry met Meghan, that's also the month of Brexit, that's the referendum when the British people chose in their infinite stupidity to leave Europe that had been a a force for peace and economic stability and that was the canary in the coal mine that told us that Trump was coming and that was typical of the British because in the same way that people who uh, despise immigrants and talk of foreigners the English white English have this attitude of foreigners Johnny Foreigner they say oh don't want that Johnny Foreigner here and along comes Megan what is she American strike one Two an actress strike three try then she 's divorced, married to a jew, progressive views, all bad things, but the mother, her mother, is black. That is it. It's no way is it going to last. She is the equivalent of Yoko Ono on steroids. John Lennon left his English rose wife for an Asian woman. This was betrayal to the white Aryan supremacists who love to think themselves so superior. So Meghan was on a downward slope from the moment that she entered into that family.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Lola, first of all, A, their future queen is also a divorcee, and they're about to put a crown on her, but they don't want to give a title to Archie just because he's the one black kid they don't want to give it to. Um But to, to come back to you um, for a moment, Lola, they don't like Johnny Foreigner, except they went and got Janie Foreigner, you know, Janie Foreigners. They were happy to put on American, you know, people who basically, you know, troll Megan on Twitter, and they, they were, like, willing to put them on and then use that for the tabloids to attack her again. And, and so they didn't have a problem going outside of the United States to people who don't even cover the royal family to say, if you'll attack her, we'll put you on. And then we'll use that to put back in the tabloids and attack her again.
8: So Meghan seems to me to be the scapegoat. And so there's something that Harry alluded to in the interview where you know, Oprah asked him about the relationship between the royal family and the tabloids. And he was essentially saying to the royal family, you know, call them off, like get the dogs off our back. And the royal family didn't want to do that because the relationship is that the royal family depends on the perception of the public in order to keep themselves alive. The reality is that the royal family doesn't need to exist in its current form. And it only exists in its current form because people believe in it. And so when people stop believing in it, then actually there could be be in the future no royal family. And that's why I think um, Meghan is so threatening. Because, one, she's a threat to yeah. the idea of class supremacy, racial supremacy, um, you know, country supremacy. She could destroy the whole idea of what a royal family stands for. And I think that's what they see. And that's what they're so afraid of.
2: And even if she's over here, I'm sorry, y'all, but she will be a superstar. She and Harry stars. Lola Adesoye, Martin Lewis. Can't do nothing about it. That's tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night.
0: Today's news requires more facts.
2: Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region.
3: More analysis.
2: Most of the states with the worst rates of
3: gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective.
2: This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country.
0: The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.